0: I want to begin with a quote from an 18th century Bible expositor named Charles Simeon. In summarizing the character of Jonah, he said this, Perhaps in all the sacred scripture, there is not to be found a more strange and inconsistent character than the prophet Jonah. That he was on the whole a good man, We have every reason to believe. But his spirit was on many occasions so contrary to what we might have expected to find in a prophet of the Lord. That if we did not know from our own hearts what is in man. We should not have conceived it possible that such contrarieties could be combined in the same character. Well, A little background to the prophet Jonah. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet whose ministry covered the years of 786 to 747 B.C. His only other appearance in the Old Testament is in 2 Kings 14. And there we learn that the king over the northern kingdom of Israel at this time was King Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was not a righteous king, and yet God, in his mercy, put on the lips of his prophet Jonah an oracle of blessing over the king and the kingdom. Now, what is perhaps most telling about Jonah's prophecy to King Jeroboam II is not so much what is present in the account, but what is absent we find in that account of Jonah's prophecy, no resistance. He is called the Lord's servant. And as the Lord's servant, he faithfully delivers the message of the Lord's mercy to his king. But in the pages of scripture, we read that the Lord has another assignment for Jonah. This assignment was not to give a message of mercy to a king of his own people, the Israelites. It was an assignment to give a message of repentance to one of Israel's enemies, Nineveh. And we find the details of this assignment in the book that bears the name of the prophet Jonah. In our time together, I'd like us to look at the first two chapters of Jonah seek to learn what God would have us to learn from this interesting prophet. The outline I'm following recognizes that the book of Jonah is presented as a narrative and therefore it has acts and scenes. Chapters one through two make up act one with four scenes. Chapters three through four make up act two with four scenes. And to give credit where credit is due, I'll be using an outline crafted by a man by the name of Robert Chisholm. Let's get into it. Act 1, scene 1, Jonah runs from God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. This expression, the word of the Lord came to, is a common expression in the Old Testament that is used to introduce divine revelation. Here in verse 1, the prophet Jonah is the recipient of divine revelation. And what God reveals to Jonah is that he is to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. God here commissions Jonah to go and preach a message of condemnation, of repentance to the city of Nineveh because their depravity had become such a stench in the nostrils of God that he could hardly bear it any longer. And as verse 3 begins, so Jonah rose. Now, stop right there. If we just took those words, so Jonah rose, we would be led to believe that Jonah is about to do exactly as God said. In the Hebrew, this sense is clear, as in verse 2, God said, arise, which in the Hebrew is kum. That same word is used of Jonah's initial response. So, Jonah rose, same word in the Hebrew, kum. God said, kum, Jonah rose kum so at first glance we're a little encouraged jonah's about to obey but then we read further and we're left to sigh as jonah rose not to go to nineveh but to flee to tarshish jonah rebels against the clear commission of god scholars debate the exact location of tarshish but What we know about the general locale of Tarshish is that it was west of Israel. Nineveh is east. So Jonah goes in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. But there's more. The port city of Tarshish was at the uttermost part of Israel's geographical awareness. Not to mention 2 Chronicles 9.21 indicates that a round trip to Tarshish was three years. So if you were going to go as far away as possible, you take a year and a half long trip to Tarshish. We would say in our day, Timbuktu. Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. He went to Timbuktu. So not only does he want to go away from Nineveh, he wants to get as far away from Nineveh as possible. Now, how was Jonah going to make it to Tarshish? Again, Tarshish... Not a hop and a skip away, we've already established. How was he going to make it there? Well, the text says he went down to Joppa, which is a port city not far from Jerusalem, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish. Jonah is going to get to Tarshish by a ship and crew members and take note that he paid to do this. To pay for a ride on a ship in that day, you could pay for a seat or you could rent the entire ship for your journey, the former being cheaper than the latter. Ancient Jewish tradition leans in the direction that Jonah rented out the whole thing. And if this uh, tradition is correct, then as one modern commentator estimates, Jonah would have needed to sell some things to acquire enough money for the trip. Specifically, it was likely that he would have had to sell his own house to pay the fare. You know, when we speak about following the Lord and obeying his ways, we speak about the cost of it, right? And we're right to do that. Jesus said that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow him. And that is true, amen? Amen. But the same Jesus who said those words would have us recognize through his prophet Jonah that the alternative route is costly too. For one of God's children to say, Lord, I know what you have commanded me to do, but I'm going to do this my way. That rebellion will come at a cost, make no mistake about it. Rebellion against God is costly. Jonah is in rebellion and we see how far he's willing to go to rebel. The author of Jonah no doubt bringing this to the fore. He repeats two times in these first 3 verses that Jonah's fleeing not from the presence of the Lord. Not a flee from the presence of the Lord. That's a theological conundrum if we take it literally. The Bible teaches there's nowhere we can go that the Lord's presence is absent. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 139, Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God is not confined by geographical specificity, the psalmist says. He's omnipresent. The author of Jonah knows that, and so what the author is intending to communicate by referring to the presence of the Lord is that Jonah is fleeing from the commission of the Lord. God commissions Jonah, but Jonah's trying to get away from God's commission. Flat out, Jonah is rebelling. One of the things I love about the word of God is that it's so brutally honest. Um, this is one of those places. Jonah just flat out rebels against God. There's no political correctness here. No watering down or whitewashing the truth. The author is showing us the straight-up rebellion of God's prophet, Jonah. And things get worse for Jonah. We continue to see Jonah's downward spiral. Act 1, scene 2, God gets Jonah's attention. And so begins God's relentless pursuit of the prophet. Verse 4 says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. By the language here, we can conclude in no other way than this tempest is a supernatural work of God. Notice it was God who hurled the great wind on the sea. And the result was that a great tempest arose. This tempest is so significant that even the ship threatened to break up. The Hebrew literally reads, the ship thought it would be broken. As one commentator quipped, the ship was a nervous wreck. The author is obviously using personification here. And the reason he does this is for the express purpose of showing just how far far Jonah's lunacy has gone. Even, get this, the ship is responsive to God. The ship obeys, rather the sea obeys, the ship responds, but Jonah is rebellious. Ironic also is the fact that Jonah was depending on the sea, the wind, and the ship to get to Tarshish. He was likewise depending on the mariners, but verse 5 shows that even the mariners are starting to break under the pressure. This says at one level just how serious a tempest this was. You know, mariners were out on the sea all the time. They were privy to a little turbulence, yet this is no average turbulence. They were as the text says, afraid, and rightly so. And they begin hurling things overboard to try to lighten the ship. So what we've got is God hurling a wind on the sea and the mariners hurling things overboard. There's absolute chaos. Jonah must be in panic mode right now. Jonah probably bit all his fingernails off, scratched every hair from his head, developed every kind of nervous tick, known to man. That's what you would think, right? But the text says that Jonah's and the hold of the ship fast asleep. The Greek translation of the Old Testament indicates that he began to snore. Ladies, your husband snore. Picture a tornado outside. Husband in the house snoring. That's Jonah. Outside chaos. Inside peace. You know, scholars speculate about the uh, psychological state of Jonah. And I even thought, did Jonah take some NyQuil or something that he's able to get to this state? All right, because if I'm Jonah, I'm cognizant with what's going on outside. And you know, that's coming from someone who's never been in a storm on the sea, but I have been on a roller coaster ride before. And some people pass out in the midst of that kind of turbulence. So maybe the roller coaster is the equivalent of the Tempest, and maybe Jonah's just passed out. right, But the problem with that is that the text doesn't say that he's passed out. It says that he's fast asleep. So what should we conclude about Jonah's state of mind? I think it's frivolous to speculate. The real issues are Jonah is impervious to, number one, the chaos going outside, and more importantly, number two, get this, the dissipation of his plans. While Jonah is sleeping, God is messing up Jonah's world. And notice that the last person on the ship who can write the ship, literally, comes to wake him up, verse 6 says, The captain came and said to him, How can you sleep? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to this that we may not perish. Jonah's last hope has no hope. He knows, like everyone else and everything else, this ain't working. So don't miss it. Everything that Jonah was relying on to assist him in his rebellion against God crumbled. The wind, the sea, the ship, the mariners, the captain, all of it were Jonah's means to get away from the commission of the Lord. But the Lord showed a sovereignty over all those things by turning them against Jonah. So sometimes the means of the rebellion of a child of God are the tools of the Lord's discipline. Sometimes God will take the very things his people used to disobey him with and turn them against them. It's true, God may discipline us with the very things we disobey him with. The book of Numbers says it this way, your sin will find you out. Paul warned about this in this manner, when he said, don't be deceived, if we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. And this happens when good things have become God things to us. When blessings become idols. When what God has given us becomes our heart's greatest affection. And it can be kids, a spouse, a friend, a car, a dog, a phone, a house, a status, a salary, just insert it in there, it can become an idol for us. When we make things idols, sometimes God will use those very things against us as a form of his loving discipline. And when God does this, as the author of Hebrews says, he's treating us as his legitimate children In other words, when we find our idols crumbling before us, God is treating us as a son he loves and as a loving father he's jealous. He will have no one else before him. He wants to remind us that there's no greater substitute for him, that he is the best. And to get us to that place, he may sometimes take the very things we've used to disobey him and turn them against us, just as he did with Jonah. Well... You think it gets better for Jonah? Act 1, scene 3, the prophet goes overboard. The intensity of the tempest continues to increase and the mariners continue to grow in fear. So they come together and they cast lots to figure out who's responsible for this calamity. On the casting of lots, Proverbs sixteen thirty three says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, God is sovereign over the casting of lots. And since we've been following the story here, we can assume there's no mystery whom the lot sovereignly fell on. (laughs) It's Jonah. God is still pursuing Jonah. The mariners begin to recognize it too. They inquire of Jonah to explain some things about himself. Jonah responds in verse 9, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea... And the dry land. They know it. They know it. Jonah is the problem. He's the culprit for all of this calamity. And now they're terrified. Verse 10 says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. These men are convinced now Jonah's the problem. So they asked Jonah, verse 11, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Now this is a very insightful question by the mariners. They understand that Jonah is under the discipline of the Lord and they are indirect recipients of God's discipline of Jonah. They know that the only way for them to get out from under divine discipline is, forget this, someone else to absorb the punishment for them. And Jonah is that someone. Now the theological undertones, they continue. Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will be quiet for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The instructions are clear. If the mariners will just throw Jonah overboard, the chaos will stop. And the message is simple. The removal of God's judgment demands a sacrifice. Jonah is that sacrifice that will divert God's anger if only they will heed the message of the prophet. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rowed hard, literally they dug in their oars to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The immediate response of the mariners to the clear and exclusive message of God's salvation was, listen to this, to try to find another way. To try to find a way by human effort to save, them, to save themselves. That's just like sinful humanity, isn't it? Here's the exclusive way of salvation. It's a clear and definitive path. But sinful humans want to find another way to get saved. Charles Spurgeon was right when he said, The general religion of mankind is do. Just do. Sounds like a Nike slogan. Just do it. Just do. Do. D. James Kennedy called it fig leaf religion, alluding to Adam and Eve's response to their sin when they tried to cover up their shame by their own clever works. But brothers and sisters, God is opposed to all man-made religions and fig leaf religions. He's against every other path than his own. In the story of Jonah, he brings the storm on even stronger and makes it impossible for these men to succeed. And then finally, They recognize the futility of their efforts. They cry out to God in fear while the storm is raging, and they throw Jonah overboard, and the sea immediately quiets down. Now, can you just imagine that for a second? Crazy storm going on. Jonah goes overboard, hits the water, and quiet. Uh, That would scare me. How about you? (laughs) That would be frightening. Well, the mariners are in shock, and the text indicates that they worship the Lord. And as promised, God's judgment was removed by the sacrifice of Jonah. I can't help but be reminded of Christ when I read this. Uh, The mariners were trying everything in their power and their prowess to divert God's judgment, but there was only one thing. It was the sacrifice. This illustrates, I think, the exclusivity of the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. John fourteen six. 6. Jesus' disciple Peter preached, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts four twelve. And when you and I first repented and trusted in Christ, we were removed out from under God's eternal judgment. Jesus said that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Aren't you glad about that? I believe that God has given us a picture of redemption here in the sacrifice of Jonah. The removal of God's judgment demands a sacrifice. And Picking back up the story, we're left to wonder what's going to happen to Jonah. And uh, sometimes it's nice to read the scripture as if you've never read it before. Um, Well, that's where we go next. Act 1, scene 4. Jonah praises God in an odd place. Verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We have here, once again, The intervention of God in Jonah's life. The word appointed can also be translated ordained. Um, But either way we translate it, we're looking at the same thing. This is God's predetermination to do something. And taking into consideration that the book of Jonah uses the Hebrew word behind this word three other times in chapter 4. To describe God's ordination of a plant, a worm, and the wind we have an even fuller picture of God's character, and that is God is sovereign over the natural world. Nothing is outside of his control. Everything is underneath his sovereignty, including the natural world. And in the immediate scene, we're seeing that God sovereignly ordained that a great fish swallow Jonah. And as we see, Jonah was in the belly of that fish for a few days. Now, the text presents this as a flat-out miracle. And by miracle, I mean the kind of miracle for which there's no scientific explanation. While we can't deny that proofs have been furnished to support people making it out alive after being swallowed by a fish, these are, as far as I can tell, irrelevant to the story of Jonah. Jonah's adventure in the belly of the great fish can't be explained by natural phenomena. It was a miracle. It was a miracle in the same way that creation by the word of God was a miracle. In the same way that Jesus turning water into aged wine was a miracle. In the same way the resurrection from the dead was a miracle. In the same way that God taking a stony heart of his elect and replacing it with a heart of flesh is a miracle. Jonah's experience in the belly of a fish was a miracle of that sort. And while Jonah was in that fish, he came to his senses. Yes. He began to recount his plight as he was drowning in the sea. His life seemed over. He was sinking in despair. There was nothing he could do. He was at the end of himself. And then God sent a fish to swallow him. And while in that fish, he began to offer some praise to God. And essentially, Jonah's praise in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, fits the pattern of a psalm. It looks like a psalm. It sounds like a psalm. If we could smell a psalm, it would smell like a psalm. And we can even say that it is a psalm. Richard Phillips observes that Jonah's psalm, get get this, uses the book of psalms at least 10 times. Psalms 3, 5, 16, 18, 31, 42, 50, 65, 88, and 120. Jonah knows the psalms. And in a time of despair, lament repentance and praise the psalms provide the language he needs to express his heart to God let's hear what he said then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying I called to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice This word Sheol was an Old Testament word for the place of the dead. When a person died, they were said to go to Sheol. Jonah said he cried out to God from this place. And this is a reason why some scholars have said that Jonah actually died. And that's possible. But chapter 2 verse 1 leads me to believe that Jonah prayed to the Lord while physically still alive in the belly of the fish. So it's more likely that Jonah is using Sheol in a figurative manner. And if you want a verse where Sheol is used figuratively, Psalm chapter 30, verse 3, David used the expression, and he said, O oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. So David wasn't talking about a death experience. He was, though, talking about a near-death experience with his soul being in anguish as a result. So I believe Jonah is praising God in a similar manner now by explaining that i don't want to invalidate the force of the expression Uh, jonah feels like death all right you ever been there um for whatever reason maybe bad health extremely taxing week at work you come and face plant on the uh, bed the mattress and you say i feel like death you've never been there before really i'm the only one okay all right No, I think we've all been there, right, to one degree or another. And while it's probably safe to say that none of us have ever been swimming in the stomach juices of a fish, we know what being spent feels like. Of course, in Jonah's case, it's his sin that has brought him to this feeling of death, and God is the one disciplining him for his sin And he goes on in verse 3 to tell God, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah is saying, things have been real bad. God, you threw me into the scariest place anyone could go, into the deep, into the heart of the seas. You know, the sea is terrifying, all right? I like the dry land. All you've got to do is show me a video of a ship or a boat out on the middle of the ocean with a whale swimming around it for me to go, no, thank you. Um, I quite enjoy my current lot in life. Uh, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. (laughs) All right, The the sea is a scary place though, right? Yeah, Jonah has been cast out by God into the scary place of the sea and the accounting of his experience there continues as he says in verse 5 the waters closed over me to take my life the deep surrounded me weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever yet you, check that out yet you this is like but God in Ephesians chapter 2 you could build an entire theology around it. I sinned, but God. I'm in a mess, but God. That's where Jonah's at. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. The Lord is hearing the repentance of Jonah. You know, Jonah's words here remind us that for the child of God, there's always hope. There's always hope. We may have sowed some wild oats. We may be reaping the consequences for our sins. We may be under the discipline of the Lord, but for Christians, there's always hope, and that hope is a hope of restoration to fellowship with God. And John has experienced this restoration to fellowship to which he puts all the glory right where it belongs. End verse nine. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In all Jonah's running, in all his disobedience, in all his rebellion, God was not done with Jonah. God was pursuing Jonah with relentless resolve. And as we see, God God brought him to the end of himself so that he might put on display his most glorious and altogether gracious mercies of salvation. Brothers and sisters, do you know that's why God saved you in the first place? He saved you out of an eternity away from him in a place called hell. He saved you and grants you mercies for the purpose of putting on display the greatness of his glory, of his grace. You're a trophy of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Well, it may be said then that the words of the psalmist came true for David. Restore to me, or rather for Jonah, restore to me the joy of your salvation, Psalm 51. Jonah's joy for his salvation was restored to him. And I think Jonah's experience shows us that God's relentless pursuit of his rebellious children leads to a saving mercies. Saving mercies. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see this as clear as God intends it to be seen from Jonah that God is in relentless pursuit of you and he will never let you go until you're fully conformed into the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. And on that path of God's saving mercies toward us, the book of Jonah helps us learn some other things. One thing we learn is it's foolish to run from God. It makes no sense. It's like Pastor Ben always says, for a child of God to sin amounts to temporary insanity. When we run from God, we are losing our minds. It's foolish to run from God. If we are running this morning, we must stop and return to the Lord. And we also learn from the book of Jonah, these first two chapters, that when we return to the Lord, he will receive us back. The Lord is a good shepherd who brings his wayward sheep close to him when they return. He knocks the dust off their wool and bandages up their wounds. He sets back in place what has been broken. He nourishes their souls in the green pastures of his field. That's what our good shepherd does for us when we return. Of course, I can't guarantee from God's word that our circumstances will change when we return. We may live with the consequences for our sins. Jonah had to live with some consequences for his sins. A guy who discipled me in college pointed this out when he was teaching through the book of Jonah. He pointed to the text and says, notice how after Jonah prayed, the fish vomited him out. Okay? And he used a little bit of iteration, or sorry, alliteration. And he, he said this. He said, sometimes prayer produces puke. Uh, P-P-P. Sometimes our prayers to God in the aftermath of repentance and confession and restoration may produce the kind of consequences that we wish that we didn't have, but we do have. And in those kinds of situations where we're reaping the consequences for our sins, there's a couple of things that I think we need to do. One is we need to say God is just. He is a just God. In reality, I deserve way worse than the consequences that are upon me right now for my sins. God is just, but you also need to remember this. God is merciful. And what do we learn from James? Mercy triumphs over judgment. God is a merciful God. And as his children, he'll receive us back. And what a comfort, what a wonder, what a blessing to know That everything that happens in our lives, even the sins that God allows in our lives, are working together for our good and for his glory. They're causing us to look more like Jesus Christ because that's what God's in the business of in our lives, is making us look like Jesus. So there's a movement as we read the book of Jonah from looking like Jonah to looking like Jesus. That's what God is in the business of doing in our lives. I pray we would leave this place today encouraged that our Father loves us and he's chasing after us all the way to the end. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.